Today, we are talking about realizing your calling. We're talking about that because today is the day that David finally becomes king. He finally uh, gets anointed uh, king over all of Israel. And uh, we're going to look at that as we have kind of been looking at the rise of David, and now we'll be looking at the reign of David. So please join me in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm going to read from verses 1 to 4. And that brings up this whole uh, story of him becoming king. So let's uh, read together. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, You are, or we are, your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So David finally becomes king. This is a long process. This did not happen easily, nor was it quick. This whole period was probably about 20 years or so. So here he is, finally king. Uh, king of all of Israel. Uh, before that, for seven years, he was king over just one tribe. Just one of the 12 tribes. And he did that from a small village in Hebron. Before that, he, was, he spent about two years uh, in, as kind of a, uh, the leader of some guerrillas that were in Philistine country. They weren't even in, in uh, Israel. They were kind of on the outskirts. We were, they were living among the enemies over there. Before that, he was kind of by himself or maybe with a few people hiding from King Saul, hiding in the caves and all of that kind of things, just kind of trying to stay alive. Before that, he was a great commander of the army, probably the most well-known soldier of all of Israel. He had had so many accolades. He got married to Saul's daughter. It was a good time in his life. And even before that, he was in Saul's court. Before that, he was in the prime of his adolescence as he took on Goliath, the giant from the Philistine army, and conquered him. And just before that, he was just sitting at home taking care of his dad's sheep when Samuel shows up and says, hey, I've got great plans. God has got great plans. You will be the king of Israel. That whole process, all its ups and downs and obstacles was 20 years or so. And now finally, he is the king. The dream has come true. He has figured out what he's supposed to be and who he's supposed to be. He has received his calling. And today we're going to look at your calling. Uh, not your specific calling, you know, that's very unique to you, but your general calling in life. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have given your heart to Christ, you are his follower, you are a disciple, then you all have this calling. What is that calling? Well, it's many things. 
And the Apostle Paul and the other writers in the New Testament give us so many different words and uh, pictures of what it looks like to have this call from God. But here are a few. This is not exhaustive, but it's a few. 1 John 3.1 says that you are called to be God's children. God's children. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that you should be called children of God, and that is what you are. You are loved, deeply loved children of God, part of his family, adopted into his care, and nurtured by him. That's your calling. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are loved, and you are a child of God. But we see even more. Paul tells us two times in Romans and 2 Timothy that you are called to be holy. You're called to be holy people. You are called to a holy life. So you are called to holiness, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. He tells us again in Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 that you are called for freedom. You are called to be free. Not to be imprisoned, not to be chained up, not to be in darkness that Satan gives, what the world gives, but that you are free to walk in the light of Christ. In Colossians 3, it says that you are called for peace, that all of you, as you are together in the one body of Christ, that you are called together to be at unity and to have peace together. Now, Peter kind of ups the ante here. He, he takes it even a step further. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are called to follow in the sufferings of Christ. He gave you an example that if you are a follower of Christ, that not only do you get all those fun things and those cool things, but you are called to carry your cross, to walk with him, and to suffer for him. But lastly, you are called for heaven. In Philippians 3.14, he says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That this world is not all there is, but as followers of Christ, that we have this calling to, that calls us into heaven to receive this goal, this prize, this goal, the prize that I can't even comprehend. I don't even know what that is and how to explain it, but I just know that it's something that drives us with great passion and love. All of this centered as loved children of Christ. This is what you're called to. So, how do you do that? How do you walk this journey of the Christian faith? What, how do you go from point A to point B? And, you know, for David it took 20 years or whatever to get this calling. But for us, this will take the rest of our lives. The rest of your life you will be... Uh, holding on to this calling, you'll be pursuing Christ, and through this, the rest of your life, you will be changing, and you'll be growing, and you'll be becoming more and more the person that Christ wants you, the more and more as you reflect Christ. So what can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from David? What can we learn from Samuel's verse, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5? There's a few things in here that we can learn, and to make it easy, we made them all one word. They all start with T, so it should be pretty easy. But these are the words to help you throughout life as you realize your calling as God's children. One is trust, two is test, and the third is target. Here's what I mean. Trust in God's plan. Trust in God's plan for salvation. Okay, he has got it figured out. We can trust in him. We'll talk much more about that. Uh, second is test your motivations. Test your motivations, your heart, and what drives you, and what is your passion. 
And third, target obstacles with courage. Just because we are in God's plan, just because we are called into his family does not mean there won't be obstacles, does not mean that there won't be a time for courage. We see all of these things with David. We see them in our lives, and hopefully these are things that will point you in the right direction as you realize your calling as children of God. So let's launch into this. Let's get going. Uh, like I said, this is five chapters, Okay. Uh, we won't cover everything. It is my, like my personal conviction ought to be I'd like to read every single verse. Uh, we can't. So I'm, there's going to be times where I summarize. There'll be times where I read a section or whatever. But I just encourage you to take this home. Go look at it throughout this week. Read these chapters. Take what we, you've heard here and see it in his, in his word. And let this be an encouragement to you through this week. So first... Trusting God's plan for salvation. See, this little story, these five chapters that are all part of God's plan of salvation that he has given us in scripture, that it starts way back in the beginning where there's somebody who is going to take the curse away. That curse we know uh, is found in all of us and it's ultimately uh, healed or, or taken care of through Jesus Christ on the cross, Right? This whole storyline from the curse to Jesus Christ, it goes through Israel and it goes through David. It's through his line. And so this is all part of that plan of salvation. And so when we open up 2 Samuel chapter 1, we really see some crazy things going on. I'm just going to tell you, it's crazy. And I sometimes look at this story and say, why in the world is all of this stuff here? Um, but there's a purpose. Let me quickly give you a quick summary, okay? So instead of taking 20 minutes to read all these, I'm just going to give you a quick summary, right? Here's, here's what we got. Chapter 1 opens up with Saul is dead. Chapter 1, after the death of Saul. So David is sitting there in his city, and someone comes up to him and says, hey, Saul has died. David, instead of throwing a party, saying, yes, now I can be king, he throws a kind of a mourning, a lament. He cries and he sends this whole lament that he has the whole country uh, memorize, right? That's where it starts. But from there, it goes crazy. Chapter, uh, later in that chapter, he becomes king of just one tribe in Judah. There's another man called Ishbosheth. He is the son of Saul. He becomes the king over all the rest of Israel, all 11 tribes. And then there's a civil war. End of chapter 1, chapter 2, they go at it. And it's almost like David becomes a footnote. He becomes a little part of the story, and we see these two side characters, Abner and Joab, who come into the picture. And for them, they kind of dominate these next few verses, or these next couple chapters. And, and just so you know, when, when you got Abner, who's like an opportunistic person. He's kind of exploits thing. He's shady. He kind of has these little deals on the side. It looks good, but it's, it's not with a true motivation. It's not with a good heart. You got him as the commander of Saul's army. He's going to play a central figure in here. But you also have Joab. He's the commander of David's army. But he's very different. He's a violent man. He's the kind of man who watches MMA and wears leather and rides a motorcycle. You know, that's kind of his personality. It's all violence. 
And that's the, his pursuit in life. And you have these two take center stage and fighting each other. And you see this kind of this game in chapter 2 that turns into a riot, that turns into a massacre, that turns into these grudges that they have for the rest of their lives. That's all chapter 2 and chapter 3. As uh, chapter 3 goes on, the war continues. David becomes stronger. Ishbosheth and the other northern uh, kingdom, he becomes less powerful. But then you see Abner again kind of usurp his power. He tries to challenge the king and then he defects to go talk to David. He goes to David and says, basically, we'll talk more about this in detail, says that, you know, I can bring you the kingdom. I can give you what your heart desires. Before the chapter ends, he has been killed. David laments him. In chapter 4, Ishbosheth, the king of Israel, he's assassinated. And then in between chapters 4 and 5, we have this period of time. It might be as much as four or five years where Israel is kind of without a king. And then finally in chapter 5, the verse that we read earlier, David finally becomes king over all of Israel. It doesn't stop there. There's some more battles, three more battles in the rest of chapter 5. But you see this crazy story. If you read it, and, and I, as I did this week, I sit there and say, why is the story in the Bible? Like, why do we have it? Because when I open the Bible, I want Jesus. I, I want Jesus. I, I'm, I'm fine with Samuel and David and, and Abigail, these people that kind of these, these shining lights in the story. But then when we get to the Joabs and the Abners and the Philistines and the Amalekites and Doags and Sauls and all these people that just kind of drag it down and they create drama, I'm like, why? Like, the Bible needs a better editor, you know? But here's what I get. I struggle with this this week, but here's why we have these stories in there. I think it's because this is the context for salvation. This is the culture that God's word drives right through. And in David's situation, you have these shady characters and these bad characters and these tough characters... And they're going to try to pull David one way or the other. Follow me, follow me. And David has to decide, am I going to follow these guys or am I going to follow the Lord? And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to him. It's a challenge to you and a challenge to me because those same people that were in 2 Samuel are in our lives today. We have people in there, right? The, The haters and the trolls and... All those people that just try to bring us down. Those people that maybe they look like your friends, but they're not. They're just looking for opportunities. But this is the place where our our salvation is lived out. And this is the place that we get to learn how to trust in the Lord. You guys, trusting in God, we talked about it a little bit last week. And we'll talk about it more today. That this, this is right in the heartbeat of us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have this this opportunity to trust in the Lord and to allow him and his plan to roll out. And it is hard. It is hard to trust in the Lord, but this is what we are asked to do throughout our lives. And this is what David does. And so let me uh, look at a few different examples here. There's probably three. We'll look at two in detail. Um, and see how he navigated this, how he navigated life 
to where he's getting pulled left and right. People are trying to put their agendas before him. But he holds on and trusts in the Lord and lets the Lord plan develop. Right? The first one is right there in chapter 1. Right at the very beginning. He's sitting in his city. David is back in Ziklag. This is, remember, this is in the Philistine area. Who was fighting against King Saul? Who killed King Saul? The Philistines. So David is like in enemy territory. But right now, at the beginning of this, he wasn't fighting Israel. He was fighting the Amalekites down south. So there's all these crazy battles going on. David's right in the midst of all of these. And as he, he got back to his home, he's starting to relax and taking a shower. This man comes in and just runs in the door, and he's carrying the crown of Saul and his armband. And David's like, what's going on? What is, what is all this about? And he says, well, I was just out in Gilboa, in the mountains of Gilboa, like just kind of wandering around. And this man, you know, that's where the battle is, right? And this man calls out to me. I go over him, and it's King Saul. And King Saul had an arrow in him. He he fallen on his spear, like he's he's about ready to die, but he just still hadn't died yet. And so Saul calls over to me, and he says, "Will you just put me out of my misery? I don't want the enemy to get me." It's funny that he's talking to actually another enemy. The enemy says, "Sure, I'll do that." And so he kills him. He takes the crown. He takes his armband. Doesn't take a spear but um, takes everything else and, and comes before David. And what he's saying is, David, here it is. Here's the crown. You're the one. Put that crown on. Make yourself king. Put it on. I'll take a picture. Put it on Instagram. Send it around to all of Israel. You're king. Everybody will know it today. You see? It's his agenda. His agenda. And let's, let's throw a party. Let's, let's make you king right now. But David's so funny because he's so unpredictable. Just when you think like, ah, he should be celebrating this is when he, he does the complete opposite. So it's a whole story. He says, you're an Amalekite, aren't you? Yeah. How in the world would you lay your hand on God's anointed to save you some of the story that man doesn't live to see another day? But instead, there is a, a whole lament. He has a nine-verse lament, and he has the whole, all of uh, his whole country memorize this lament. Basically, he's saying, I'm not going to go that way. I'm not going to become king through your violent act, your merciless act. You see one person pulling him that way, and he's saying, no, now instead I'm going to trust God. I don't know what he does with the crown. He doesn't put it on. Maybe he keeps it in his gym bag, kind of puts it away for later on. But as we continue through the story, he does say, Lord, I'm here in Philistine country. You know, what do you want me to do? Like, what, what's the plan, Lord? And the Lord says, I want you to go back to Israel. Go back to Hebron, a little village in the south down there on the south end of Israel. Go down there. And he goes there, and the men of that country, they see him, and they greet him, and they... They remember how he led them in the battle, and so they, they crown him as the king, the king over that one tribe. He has one tribe down, 11 to go. But as this plan is unfolding, just a little bit, little by little, he continues to get pulled other ways. So as we jump into chapter 3, we again come face to face with Abner. Abner now, who is, uh, is realizing that, that the king that he put in control 
uh, of Israel is losing power. He's not ruling the way he should. Abner says, all right, I'm going to take matters into my own hands here. And so he finds the concubine of Saul. He sleeps with her. And that's really an act of uh, kind of, um, it'd be like running for president, you know, by doing that. And uh, Isposheth understood that. He knew what was happening on what was happening, they have kind of a confrontation. And Abner says, okay, forget it. I'm not cut out for politics. Instead, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to take my power elsewhere. I'm going to go to David. And what he does sounds good. On the surface, it sounds so godly. Because remember, he's an opportunistic kind of character. He sees an opportunity, he's going to go take it. He's going to leave the north. He's going to come to David in the south. And he's going to bring his power. And he's going to say, hey, together we can do this. All right, together we can do this. I'm going I'm to bring all of Israel around. They're going to gather around you. Together we're going to be king. And just as he did to the other king, he's going to try to control David. But it sounds so good. Listen to it. It says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says, May the Lord deal with Abner, myself, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Sounds great, doesn't it? I'm going to do what God has brought us to do. I'm going to bring everybody together. But notice that emphasis on I. I'm going to do this. He's in verse 12, he sends messengers to David and he says, whose land is this anyway? Make an agreement with me and I will help bring all of Israel to you. And then again, he's face to face with David in verse 21. He says, let me go at once and assemble all of Israel for the Lord my king so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may rule over them as your heart desires. Did you hear that? Is this really Abner's kingdom to give? Is this really, does he really have the, the power to do that? Well, the quick answer is no, because before the chapter is over, Joab kills him, and he's not able to accomplish this plan. But more importantly, look at, look at what he's doing here. He's saying, he's kind of looking at David going, you know, you got a nice thing here. Cute little kingdom, cute little town. If you join me, we're going to make this into a world power. If you join me, we're going to take it to the next level. Everybody's going to know your name. This is going to be the best days. People are going to write songs about this. This is going to be good. But that's not his to give. Doesn't that remind you of Matthew chapter 4 when, when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's being tempted and Satan is there before him? Do you remember what Satan says? He says, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. He says, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. See, Abner has that same voice of Satan saying, hey, together we can rule the world. I'll give you everything your heart desires. And there are people out there that are a little more sneaky, right? A little more sneaky, a little deceptive. They come by and just say, you know what, I can make you rich quick. Or, you know, I, I, know, how to, I know how to really supercharge your spiritual life. Like, just, just stick with me and follow me and read my book or read, be my disciple. And I'm going to take you there. 
I don't know. You, you know what's going on. You see that. You guys, there, there, is, there is, whenever you see those, I hear those radio broadcasts, the commercials, you know, when I see the signs on the freeway, say, get rich quick, you know, come be part of this seminar, pay thousands of dollars, and you'll get the booklet on how to make, you know, be successful. Like, you guys, there's no quick route to that. Whether in life or your career or your spiritual life, if the world wants you to think that, Satan wants you to think that, because you're trusting in someone else. And David's being pulled these different ways, and he has to say, no, I'm not going to go with that. I'm not going to trust that. I'm going to wait on the Lord. Another one in chapter 4. I won't read that, but the same thing, that's these two kind of hooligans, they they assassinate the king of the north and they come and they think that they're doing David a favor but he sees right through that. Everybody pulling him one way or the other. Here's, I guess, what I'm getting at. That both God and the world have a plan for you. God's plan is to make you one of his children. To let you be a part of his kingdom. To experience life and that freedom and the peace and all of these things and, and to have an eternal future for you that can far surpasses anything in this world. That's God's plan. But the world also has a plan for you. The plan is to trap you, to control you, to trick you, to imprison you, to keep you in the dark, to make you feel shamed, This is the world's plan. And that is in front of us all the time. David had it, and he had to navigate, and he had to learn how to trust. Yes, did he want to be king? For sure he did. Was he sick of, you know, all these things that he had to put up with and the violence? Absolutely he was. But more than anything, he said, I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to wait for him. I'm going to wait for his timeline. I'm not going to take the throne through violence or manipulation or exploitation or anything that's immoral or illegal or deceitful. I'm not going to take that. Instead, I'm going to wait for the Lord because he's going to bring it in his time. And when it comes, I know it will be from him. Trusting in the Lord. It's hard to do. I get it. It's like we said, and like we said last week, you know, the Lord's plan is so much slower than ours. So much slower. And it doesn't always make sense. And we're left to worry. We worry so much, right? We worry about what's going to happen today and tomorrow and in the future. And every time we worry, we trust a little less in the Lord because it is impossible to trust God and to worry at the same time. Right? We cannot trust God and worry at the same time. It's one or the other. And this world is saying, just worry about it. Don't, you know, just... um, You know, get all worked up, but God's saying, no, relax and have peace and trust me. Because when we worry like that each day, we we get robbed. Satan's robbing us. We can't even enjoy the day that is before us. So this first kind of step as we understand our calling, as we move towards what God has called us to, as we become more and more like Christ, trust in God is right in the middle. May we be men and women who trust in the Lord, trust for his plan to lead us.
And that's the first thing. That's the long one. The next two will be a little shorter. You see how David's been pulled and how he has to continually trust in the Lord. The next one is trust your, test your motivations in all circumstances. Test your motivations. All right, again, here is David, and uh, you know, whenever we think that there's going to be good news and he's going to celebrate, he grieves. Here in chapter 1, you know, Saul is dead. This is your opportunity to become king. Why don't we throw a party? Let's get this coronation started. But he doesn't. He throws a funeral. Um, later on, when Abner dies, same thing. This is a major obstacle is removed. We should celebrate this. The, the general of the army that's trying to get you is now eliminated. He's out of the picture. And once again, he mourns. He grieves. When uh, in chapter 1, just before this lament, he says, he, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that all the people of Judah be taught this lament. This is not just a, a, a personal, like I write it in my, you know, my, my journal type lament. This is a song that he is, he is ordering the whole nation to learn. Think about that. This is regarding Saul. This is Saul's eulogy. Saul, who tortured him, like, just pursued him, was relentless and wanted his life. And David's saying, yeah, but we're going we're gonna to take time to lament you. We're going to take time to honor you. He says in verse 24 and 25, he says, Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet and finery? Who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold? How the mighty have fallen. I mean, this is a... This is true. This is not just kind of fake words or whatever. But he says three times in there, how the mighty have fallen. Yes, the, the literal, he, this mighty king had fallen in battle. But there's something, I think, deeper. He's looking at him spiritually, saying Saul had this opportunity. He had the ear of God. He had this opportunity to lead Israel in ways of righteousness and he didn't do it. And he went his own way. And he neglected God. And he paid dearly for it throughout his life. How the mighty have fallen. And he takes this moment to really grieve the loss, the pain, the hurt. See, he had an opportunity to take the throne. Was Saul done? He's next in line. He takes the throne. But he understood that whenever there's an opportunity for success or promotion, that it comes at someone's pain, that it comes at someone's failure. And that's what he grieved. Because he, he understood that the grace in Saul's life was greater than Saul's hatred of David. Right? Yeah, Saul hated David, but even bigger than that, more than that, was God's grace in his life, and that's what he's taking his time to acknowledge. Just when you think that he's going to throw the party, he throws a funeral. He does it again with Joab when he kills Abner. He, he makes Joab lead the procession, the funeral procession. He sings out the, the laments out loud. To capture those moments. 
One, he's making a public statement saying that I, I do not endorse this. I am not taking the kingship this way. I, my kingdom's not going to come through violence, cold-blooded violence. But instead, we're going to honor people. We're, we're going to hold fast to them. And in doing so, you see the humanity. You see him become more alive in doing that. I feel like that's something our culture needs to really grapple with too because we get so desensitized. We, we escape whenever there's, there's, and I do this, I mean, we can only take so much trouble and so much pain. And so we, we withdraw. But David would say, no, hold on to that. Hold on and, 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 and get your heart behind that feeling. He's, he's testing his motivations here. And he's bringing them before the Lord. And even in the, the sadness and even in the failure of one, he's, he's identifying. He's linking his heart with that. We see God's commentary throughout these scriptures in chapters 3 and 5 that as he trusts God, as his heart is pure before the Lord, that God continues to bless him and make him stronger. And so, Lord, as we, as we look at this whole um, kind of journey of our calling, identifying our calling. It's learning how to trust in the Lord and list, trust in him first and foremost. Let him guide us and lead us. Look for that path that he lights up. But it's, then it's, it's checking our motivation too and just our hearts and grieving with those who grieve. Rejoice with those who rejoice. David, we see that just so beautifully as his heart laments over those who are lost. The last one, though, as we come to a conclusion here, is to target the obstacles with courage. Just because he's king does not mean it's all done. Right? <laughs> In many ways, that's just when it starts. That's just when it starts. But God had been taking these, this time and developing and causing his heart to grow and in so many ways, he's growing. But now he has this opportunity to take these new challenges with courage. So as he becomes king, he's called to shepherd and to lead. And he's here in this little city, this little village called Hebron. And he's saying, it's too far south. It's too far away from the north. I need something more central. And he has his eyes on Jerusalem. What he's going to do now is take Take courage. Because this whole time, when going way, way back, when Joshua entered in the land, they were to clear out all these enemy nations, all these nations that had offended God, they were to clear out and, and, and get rid of. And they did that to a lot, but there were these little pockets, and Jerusalem was one of those pockets that they never went up to get. They never could go up there, because they were always afraid of those Jebusites that lived there. It was too well defended. But David said, that's where we're going. So he rallies his men. This is his first thing as king. He says the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. <laughs> I, it's, it's almost like they didn't even care that David's sitting down there with his army. I don't even think that they got their swords on or they weren't ready for battle. They thought no one's getting in here. But David and his men of courage went up. And just, I love the writer. He just says this. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now the city of David. 
like that whole battle is summed up with just, man, he took the city, you know? But don't, don't think just one little line there wasn't this strong act of courage that caused, did, he was doing something that nobody else had done. Furthermore, after that, the, the, the Philistines, they hear that David's king and they get so angry and they don't want him to be king and they go out two times to fight him. Not just to take a village or get more land, but to fight David in specifics. But both times, David says, what should I do, Lord? And both times, the Lord says, go get him. And here, I'll conclude with this. First, chapter 5, verse 23 and 20 through 25. And just see how it all comes together. How the, he trusts in the Lord. And the Lord pulls him together says, I will take care of you. He says, the Lord says, do not go straight up, but circle around behind and attack them from the front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar, poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you and will strike down the Philistine army. And David did, as he said. Then he has some peace in the land. But it takes courage he went out and he battled. He did it for the Lord. He sought the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. He checked his motivations. And he went out with courage. You know, this is a, it's a fascinating story of Samuel. There's a lot of crazy things in there. But in a strange way, it's like our story too. We get pulled one way or the other. But if you are called to follow Christ, if you're a part of his family, we need to trust in the Lord. We need to trust that the Lord's got us and he will lead us and he will take care of us. But know that there's other people around us that are going to try to get our own attention and, and get control and all that. We've got to stand firm. Trusting solely on the Lord. Checking our hearts and our motivations. When one person fails and one person loses, it's not a time to rejoice, but our hearts go out because that's one person who didn't understand the love of God, didn't understand the love of Jesus Christ then we go forth in courage. Wherever he calls us, whatever he calls us to do, we go. Go in courage. So if you are a child of God, let this be kind of your marching orders. Let this guide you, trusting and checking our hearts and, and going with courage. But I would say this too, for those of you who are not a child of God, maybe if you've never given your life to him, he's calling you now. He's calling you today. He's calling and saying, Hear, hear my voice, respond, because I've got a journey that will blow you away. I've got a life prepared for you that is not just right here on earth, but will be for eternity. And this all comes through the line of David, because of Jesus Christ, who was born, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for you, for your sins, to break the curse so that you could have a life that you could have a life that he's called you to. If that's you, would you talk to someone today? Talk to, uh, talk to the Lord. Talk to someone who brought you. Talk to me. Talk to one of our leaders. We'd love to hear what God is calling you to.